right, we're, uh, we got a lot to talk about here uh, this morning, but let me just make a, one or two preliminary comments. Pat mentioned that we are um, going to be praying as a whole church this Thursday. It's in the bulletin here. And let me just make a comment on that. Um, churches that do not pray like a lot lack significant power. Do we all understand that? I mean, we can't expect God to move in our midst. We can't expect him to uh, help us reach lost people and to be all that he calls us to be at the, as a church if we're not willing to engage in spiritual disciplines like understanding his word and submitting our lives and, and prayer is a significant part of that. So we, uh, we declared last month that we we're going to spend the third Thursday, 7 o'clock, in time of prayer as the whole church gathered. We really mean it. I'm prioritizing it. The elders are, the staff, and so I just want to really encourage you to come uh, if you all have any time on Thursday, and you do. So uh, I'd really encourage you to come and, and join us and to mark that in your calendars. It's over in the high school room. Uh, the only excuse I think somebody could give me is that they're nervous to pray in public. Well, here's the cool thing. We just, when you come in, you'll see we break you down into little small, small groups there. And so it's more of an intimate setting. We have a bunch of them, and then myself and the staff will lead us from up front in, in certain aspects of it. And I made the comment, and I'll make it again this Thursday, that if you want to come and just agree in prayer and not pray out loud, that's fine, because we know that some of you are newer to prayer, and so there's not a, a pressure put on you here at all. It's just join us, agree with us in prayer. Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is among them, and that if we agree in prayer, if it's the Lord's will, John tells us, it's going to be done. And so we really have a lot to pray about as a church. We'll give you a list of things to pray for, and uh, we just want to see God move more and more in our midst. So that's what that's about. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're continuing in a study here this summer at Scottsdale Bible called uh, The People of God, based on 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we're going to wrap up chapter 1 and go into chapter 2 today. And so with that said, won't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, you know my heart, hope, and that's that as we've uh, submitted our lives to you, as we've sung to you, as we've been sung to, as we've hopefully rubbed shoulders with each other uh, here today, that, that God, we might be primed now uh, for your word and to understand you in a deeper way and uh, to learn maybe even some things that we didn't know before we came in here today. And so God, as we open up your book right now, your letter from Peter, we pray that you would uh, indeed speak through your words, speak through my words. Lord, anything that I say that might not be of you, we pray would fall on deaf ears and the rest would get through. Thanks, God, that you do speak to us. Thank you that uh, you've come to us in Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, about five years ago, a man posted an auction on eBay with the title, The Best Mother in the World. It was a legitimate auction, mind you, and the winning bidder would simply receive an email from this man's mom that he promised and that it would, and I quote, make you feel like you're the most special person on earth. It was a seven-day auction, and during that week, it ran, that it ran 42,711 people, enough to fill a baseball stadium, took a look at it. 92 people eventually bid on it, and the winning bidder paid $610 for an email from somebody else's mother. Imagine that. I, I like how the article wrapped up its story on this, saying something rather profound. They said, and I quote, it's interesting how many people are willing to pay for something that most mothers would give for free. 
I, I would submit to you folks that you and I live in a world and a culture today that talks about love all the time, but rarely sees it in its most pure form. And our language and the things that we do give us away all the time. I mean, think about it. You can't listen to a radio station, watch a TV drama, read a novel, or just even eavesdrop on somebody's water cooler conversation without hearing about the virtues of love in our culture. But we talk about it all the time. We write about it on our greeting cards. We sing about it in songs. We preach about it at weddings, and we tell stories about it at funerals. We use the word to tell our kids good night, to tell our spouses good morning. We tell our grandparents and friends using this word how much they mean to us. I mean, our culture talks about and describes love all the time. We are truly a love-obsessed culture. I mean, when you think about it, we've completely worn this word out. I mean, there are more miles on the word love in our American culture than there are planes flying into Beijing this entire month. Have you noticed? And yet, with all of our talk about love, we are still stuck in a world and culture that, like, really longs to see it. I mean, many people I talk to are just longing more and more and more for this thing called love as if their love tanks have not been filled with all of our focus and talking about love. I mean, having lived here in the desert for 10 months, I almost liken it to one of these desert plants that all winter long is longing for water and wanting water, and then the monsoons come very infrequently. And for just maybe an hour, it gives them some water, and they go, ah, and then longing for more and more and more. I mean, love in its most pure form is truly a rare and unseen commodity in our fallen world and culture. And yet it is precisely love, this word that our culture talks about all the time, this idea that they're in love with, it's love that God, our Heavenly Father, calls us as followers of His Son Jesus to and to trumpet and demonstrate above all else. Did you know that? We're going to see that here today. That, mind you, out of all the things that we ever talk about as church, the number one thing that God puts a premium on of what we are to be known for and what we're to trumpet and demonstrate in the world around us is this thing called love. In fact, here's our main point this morning as we continue on in our study of 1 Peter 1 and 2, and that is this, that the heart of the church's activity toward each other is love. It's true. The heart, and I mean the core, the primary thing, that we are to do and be about in our activity toward each other is love. Let me read for you the next two paragraphs in our look at 1 Peter 1 and 2 and see if you can pick up on what this is all about when it comes to love here. I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, and then taking us up through chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to what Peter says. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mean, you can't miss it. But we are called to love one another. In fact, as we're going to see in just a moment, folks, we are called to truly have a love factor among us as a community of believers that rises above the world around us. The kind of love that is designed to turn heads and cause anybody who looks at our community to say, whoa, look at the love these people have for them. I want that kind of love. 
And what you need to know is that this command here, to have this kind of love that's a cut above the world around us, is not some isolated Peter-only idea. No, it's permeated throughout the entire New Testament as the primary activity, and I mean primary activity, that we are to be known for and that we're to engage in. I mean, think of Jesus' words, Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, that's like pretty clear, right? First and and second greatest commandments are to love. And then think of what Paul told us, Galatians 5. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. And in case you wonder, the greatest of these is love. I mean, Paul couldn't be more clear. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The greatest is love. And then as if this were not enough, look at what John says. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I mean, even the such relatively unknown, small and obscure New Testament books like Jude and Philemon, the books my guess is that you didn't read this past week in the New Testament, even these books talk about love. Jude 1, 2, and 21 says, May love be multiplied to you. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Philemon 1, 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. I mean, you're starting to see, folks, I'm not trying to bore you by giving you passage after pastor that just seem to be saying the same thing like a skip CD. I'm trying to show you a pattern that there isn't one New Testament writer, not one, who in some way doesn't tell us in clear and unambiguous terms that the primary activity of God's people, the heart of God's people, is to love. And though we're going to define what we mean by love in just a minute, as well as fill in the gaps on how this is all supposed to work, please simply see right up front the fact that in a world that talks all about love, but very rarely gets it delivered up to them as God designed, we, me and you, the church, are called to be life-giving carriers of this divinely inspired love. That's the call. That's what the people of God at the end of the day are all about. And so how does this work? What precisely is this love that Peter's talking about here and how are we supposed to deliver it up to those around us? Three things, Peter goes on to say, three things that he will tell us here about love and how it works. And the first thing, interestingly, he tells us, describes and defines this love for us, this love that we're supposed to have. And for for those of us who are taking notes, this is actually number two on your outline. I'm flip-flopping one and two because it flows better. And here it is. And that is that loving, like God loves, means deeply felt and from the heart. So in case you've ever wondered what is this love like that we're called to, loving, like God loves, means deeply felt and from the heart. Look at how Peter begins his call again and description here in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, I need to try to show you something in this passage here. So I need you to listen very close because at first glance, this just seems kind of like vanilla. Like, okay, love, love, love. We're supposed to love, right? 
no, there's a bit more going on here in this passage that you want to look at. So listen very closely here. And that is what Peter is saying here is that since you are now a Christian and on your way to becoming more like God, that's what he means when he says there in the beginning, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. He's saying that you're now a Christian, forgiven and on the road to fuller obedience and truth. He's saying now, as a result of this, you indeed do have an initial love for one another. What he calls a sincere brotherly love. Kind of like that friendship love that's based on affinity. The fact that you now share Jesus and worship together in church, etc. He's saying you have that love already just by the fact that you're saved and worshiping together. But notice that he goes on to say that we're now to actually move on from this and develop a new and improved kind of love that he labels loving earnestly from a pure heart. Do you see that there? And so he's saying that we're not to simply be content with the love that we have for each other just because we're Christians and part of the same church, a sincere brotherly love, but we're actually to raise the bar now and begin to love at a whole other level, far beyond what the world around us is used to, earnestly and from a pure heart. It's fascinating, folks. In the original Greek language that Peter was writing in some 2,000 years ago when this was first written, he actually uses two very different Greek words for love here in verse 22. Two completely different Greek words to communicate to us this idea of going from one level of love to another. And so when he says there that we all have this sincere brotherly love, that that's a given, this is the Greek word Philadelphia, which, as I mentioned, describes a friendship kind of love that's based on affinity. All of you know this kind of love. You experience it every day. It's the kind of love you have for your cousin. It's the kind of love you have for your tennis pal. It's the kind of love you have for those that you serve on the HOA board with. And it's the kind of love that you have in church on a casual basis. It's Philadelphia, a friendship type of love based on affinity. It's where we get the name for our town, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You all get the picture. We all experience this kind of love when we do certain aspects of life together. But then right with the next phrase, Peter switches words. When he talks about this new level of love that followers are called to there, he says, love one another from earnestly from the heart and this time he uses a different Greek word, the Greek word agapao. And so look up here on the screen, it's subtle. He's saying, having purified your souls by your obedience truth for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, that's a given. He says, love one another, agapao, earnestly from a pure heart. And what you need to know is that agapao is clearly a higher kind of love it's an unconditional kind of love, one that loves with no strings attached, as one Greek scholar puts it, a love that has a genuine interest in another, whether you have affinity with them or not. And Peter, by switching words here from Philadelphia to agapao, is raising the bar on the kind of love that Christians are now to have for one another and that we're to strive after every day of our lives. And then as if this were not enough, Peter goes on to add the phrase earnestly from the heart. And that word earnestly was like a really powerful word for Peter to use back then in his day. It can be translated eager or constant or even fervent. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 22 verse 44 when it says that Jesus prayed more earnestly in the garden of Gethsemane, not wanting to go to the cross but accepting the Father's will. To the point that he was sweating blood, he was praying that earnestly. 
That's the word that was used here. It's a word that can be used today of athletes that we're watching in Beijing who desperately want a gold medal and are willing to do anything and everything, even training their bodies full-time, year in and year out, just to win one gold medal. You get the idea. It means that you really, really want something fervently, earnestly. That's the kind of love that Peter's talking about here. And when he then combines this word with the phrase, from the heart, look out. Because he means the deepest recesses of your soul, the seat of your emotional, physical, spiritual, and relational life. He's saying everything in you gets behind this kind of love. And so I like how our friend and elder here at Scottsdale Bible, Wayne Grudem, sums it up in his commentary on this passage. Look up here on the screen. He says, love one another from the heart, command something which goes beyond the sincere brotherly affection of the previous passage. Peter switches from a phileo root, Philadelphia, to agapao, a deep, strong love. He then adds earnestly, a term used elsewhere, of strong, deeply felt, even fervent emotions or desires. Please see, folks, it's a new level of love that Peter's calling us to here, not even seen anywhere in the culture back then around them or in our culture even today. And so with this understanding, maybe you can now get that little quaint passage that we put on Hallmark cards and read at weddings, as if that's not what Paul originally intended, 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, look up here on the screen how he defines love. I mean, again, we, we've made this passage quaint, and we read it at weddings, put on Hallmark cards. That's not what Paul intended. He meant this passage to be gritty and tough and to call us to a level of love, no, love nobody sees. He says love is patient, it's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In short, love never ends. Wow! That's a meaty definition of love there. i got to ask you, are you this way? I mean, if somebody described you to me, would they say that so-and-so is patient and kind? Gosh, they just don't envy and they don't boast. They're not arrogant. There's really hardly any pride in them. They never really insist on their own way. They're not irritable. They're not resentful. They don't rejoice at wrongdoing. I mean, I got to tell you, this person bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I got to tell you, the guy never fails. I mean, is that how you're described? And you know, the sad thing is, is when I hear this passage taught even by some people in, in certain church circles, they make it sound like this is what we're to strive for, someday hopefully attain. That's not true. This is the way we're supposed to be right now. This is the way you're supposed to be described by those around you in the culture around you. Why? Because it's the next level of love that Christians should be known for. And if we're not, then we've missed the primary activity that God calls us to. This is the kind of love that never lets go. Accepting, caring, speaking the truth, hanging in there with a tender but firm grip that does nothing but mirror God's love for us. That's what we're called to. A few years uh, back in a town over in California called Mission Viejo, many of you have obviously heard of it, there was a, uh, an attack that, that um, made the national news written about in USA Today. A couple of gals by the name of Ann Jella and Debbie Nichols were mountain biking in Mission Viejo, and they were doing a normal trail that they've done on a regular basis. And so picture the two of them going down this, this, this dirt track there, 
And as they were going down this dirt track, at one point, Anne was real ahead of Debbie, and they rounded a corner. And when Debbie rounded the corner, she didn't see Anne. And all of a sudden, she saw Anne's bike there, and Anne was lying on the ground, and there was a 110-pound mountain lion that had grabbed onto Anne's face and was dragging her into the brush. This mountain lion had actually attacked her on her bike, got her, grabbed her face, and was now dragging her away. They came to find out later that this mountain lion had attacked a man earlier that day and had killed him and had eaten half his body. I mean, it's just almost an unheard thing. And he was now after Anne. Debbie's a mother of four, and so she jumped off her bike immediately with the instincts of a mother. She ran over and she grabbed Anne's uh, feet, and she started to pull. And as she started to pull, as you can imagine, the mountain lion pulled even more, and there began a, a tug of war. And at that moment, a couple other bikers came along, a couple of guys, and they obviously decided to help. And so they ran over to where this tug of war was going on, and they started to throw rocks and stones at the mountain lion, eventually picked up the bike and threw that at the mountain lion, and it eventually let go. But obviously, you can see in the pictures here that, that uh, Anne's face is permanently disfigured, but she's thankful just, just to be alive. Almost an unheard of thing happened. And later on, when USA Today was interviewing Debbie and Anne about this event, I asked Debbie what was going on in her mind during this whole thing. And I thought her answer was very profound. She said, I really couldn't think of much. She said, the only thing I was thinking of is that come whatever or high water. <laughs> you thought I was going to swear, didn't you? Come uh, whatever or high water. She said, I was not going to let go. In fact, listen to her quote. She says, I was not going to let go. I was not going to let go. I just kept telling Anne, I'm never letting go. What a picture. What a picture of what love is. I mean, forget about mountain lions for a minute. Forget about bikes, because that's just physical stuff. On a spiritual, relational level, what God says the heart of love is, is that he has grabbed onto your ankles. We learned this when we looked at eternal security a few weeks ago. He's grabbed onto your ankles, and he has said, no matter what tries to drag you into the wilderness, whether it's your flesh, whether it's this world, whether it's the evil one, I'm never letting go. He's not letting go of you. And the heart of our love, the tenacity of our love toward other people is the same. We are to never let go. We're called to a higher level of love than anything this world around us has ever seen. What kind of love does God have for us that he calls us to for each other? It's, it's truly a higher level, one that is earnest and fervent from the heart, unconditional in nature, and one that never lets go. And, you know, I'm sitting in my home office this week thinking, well, you know, what could somebody say to this? I mean, at this point in our look at love, well, what are you going to say to me, Jamie? I disagree with you. I mean, no one's going to say that, right? I mean, I'm not going to get any emails this week saying, ah, I think you're all wet. We're not called to that. Because we all know that we're called to that. But I thought, well, what do we do this? What could somebody say? And I thought, well, here's what somebody might say. Somebody might say, but Jamie, come on, can I really do this? I mean, can we really love like this? It just sounds so pie in the sky, especially with the kind of days that we all tend to have and the amount of frustration that we have with those around us. I mean, can we really live this? Is this really realistic? And the answer is simple, and that is, yes, it is realistic, and yes, you can live this kind of love. Because here's the second thing that Peter tells us about this higher-level kind of love we're supposed to have, and this is number one for those of you note-takers, and it's this, and that is that because we know Jesus and because the Spirit now lives in us, we are primed to love like God does. Let me repeat that. You don't want to miss this this morning. Because you and I know Jesus Christ, 
And because the Spirit of God now lives in us, the Word tells us we are primed to live or to love like God does and lays out here. And for time's sake, we're not going to spend a lot of focus on this point here this morning for the simple reason that if you've been with us, you know we just finished an entire series in the spring here of messages on Romans 6 through 8, in which the whole point of the series, if you remember, was that the Spirit now indwells the believer and primes us to live life as God calls us to. And so your new position in Christ, forgiven and filled by the Spirit, now empowered by Him, is that you now live life from this point. You live life from faith in the indwelling Spirit. And when you do, you can do the things that God indeed calls you to. And so with this understanding, look at what Peter goes on to say then in verses 23 to 25 as he calls us to love. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so having just challenged us to a love of another kind in verse 22, Peter now goes on in verses 23 to 24, 25, to tell us how and why we can live this. Namely, because we've been born anew into God's kingdom and his word and by implication his spirit now lives in us. Amen? Let me take another run at that. And his word and his spirit now lives in us. Amen? Amen. And that's what primes me and you to be able to live this kind of love. Because between your new life in him and his word and his spirit abiding in you, you're more than primed to love like he calls you to. And so what he's saying here, basically, to put it kind of candid, is no excuses. No excuses when it comes to this idea of you weaseling out of having to love like this. That if your people around you don't see you as patient and kind and caring and gentle, if they don't describe you in those heightened terms, then guess what? You're not living from a realm of faith. You are not knowing God and Jesus like he wants you to. As John says, those who know God, love like God. Those who don't, don't. And so the proof is in the pudding when it comes to how we love. But the great encouragement here is, is that if you are a Christian, you can love like this. You really can. So we're going to see it might take time. But you're now empowered to love as God calls you to. No excuses. Look up here on the screen and some of you are going to say, what is this about? This is a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon, all right? And uh, let me tell you a story about the station wagon that'll make a wonderful spiritual point. Uh, back in, it will, no, really, the most spiritual things are usually surround cars. Anyway, so uh, back, somebody said amen, I like that, all right. Back in uh, the 1990s, early 1990s, Kim and I were, I was pastoring in my very first church there in Detroit, Michigan. We were young, it's almost 20 years ago, we were, Hannah, my youngest was just born. We're living in a small little apartment in Gross Point, Michigan at our first church, and we didn't have two nickels to rub together. Do y'all remember those days? I mean, we were happy as could be. Vision was running high, love was running high, and we were broke. And uh, so at that time, somebody gave us a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon, and we were simply grateful to have a car like this. And it lasted us a good three or four years beyond that. I was mentioned before, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and so I'll never forget one winter early in the 1990s, we were heading to Cleveland for our Christmas break to see our families. 
Now, do y'all remember up north they have this thing called snow? Give me a hand raise if you remember snow, right? So it was one of those winters where like snow over Christmas was falling like in feet. I mean, the Ohio Turnpike was almost stopped and Cleveland by the time we got to was almost shut down. And so picture us driving into Cleveland with all the snow on the ground. And this was also so long ago that this was before the days of pay at the pump. Do you remember that? Where like you had to actually walk inside to pay for gas. And this was also when gas was about $1 a gallon. Boy, am I dating myself or what? So I remember driving into Cleveland, and we had about 100 bucks for the whole weekend. Again, not a lot of scratch, but we had to get through the whole weekend, and we were on empty. And so it's snowing out like crazy, and we have to get to my parents, but I got to get gas, and we have this little baby in the car, and things are cold. So I pull into this gas station, and I figure about 15 gallons will do it. So I get out. Kim's starting to get cold already. The car's off, and I, and I start pumping gas, and I put in exactly 15 gallons, and I run inside there, and I'm pulling out my 100 bucks, ready to give him a 20, five bucks change. And he looks at me and he says, that'll be $45. I said, $45? I said, I only put in 15 gallons of gas. He said, I know, you put in racing fuel. I said, you're kidding me. Racing fuel? I said, what is racing fuel? He said, it's 100 octane, son. I said, 100 octane? I never heard of something like that. So why do you guys even have that thing? Because we have a racetrack near here, dummy. You should have looked on the thing, you know. And three bucks a gallon, you know, which now seems like a deal, right? But back then, you know, so I'm, I'm doling out 45 bucks. And as I'm doling out the money, I look at him. I said, is this thing going to hurt my car? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, nah, the old lady will run as good as new. And, uh, and so, so do you, I paid out the money. Do you think I told Kim about this? No way. She's going to hear about it in the next service. And... Uh, and I'll never forget that. I thought, racing fuel. You ever put racing fuel in your car? I tell you, she did run good. <laughs> now, some of you are wondering, how in the world can there be a spiritual point in there? There is. And here it is. And this is so cool. One of the problems I've sensed in Scottsdale and Phoenix since I've been here is the same problem we had on the east side of Cleveland, which tended to be kind of a nice area too. And that is that because so many of us have done like really well in our careers, and because so many of us have uh, secured our retirement, and because so many of us might be up and coming in our careers and doing well, and we have great families, and the kids are turning out all right, and all that other stuff, is that we tend to think, now I know this might be a stretch for some of you, but we tend to think we're kind of hot stuff. Have you ever noticed that? Like when it comes to like our place in humanity, like we're the model. And what you need to know is that as much as God loves you, he does not see you that way. He doesn't. In fact, God does not see you like a brand new Ferrari. He actually sees you like a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon. It's true. He really does. He does not read your press releases. He doesn't care what your friends say. He, know, he says, I know what that person's made of. And trust me, they're a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon. And some of you are saying, is that biblical? It is. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, God uses this analogy. He said, you guys are just like jars of clay. Don't you love it? Back then, they didn't have dishes like we have today and all that. They used just simple earthenware jars of clay. Very plain, and that's what they ate out of. And Paul says that all of us are just like jars of clay, earthen vessels, nothing more, nothing less. Quite frankly, kind of fragile. That's how God describes us. But what's so cool is, is he says, however, when you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, God places a treasure inside that jar of clay. 
get this, he places 100 octane in your gas tank. And this is a great illustration. He places 100 octane in your gas tank. And that treasure and that 100 octane is the Holy Spirit. And the point is simply this, that Paul was trying to say, take heart, because though you feel that fragile jar of clay every day when you're honest with yourself, you can live what the Bible says because the Holy Spirit, this treasure, lives in you. That even though you might say, yeah, Jamie, I can relate to being a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon, take heart. God has filled you with 100 octane racing fuel by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's what he tells you. And you are primed and you are pumped now to love like he calls you to love. So think where we've come from so far today in 1 Peter 1. We've heard a clarion call that the heart of the church, you and I, is to love one another in a way not seen in the world around us, right? And this was what makes the church so special and attractive. And what is this love like? It's, it's deeply felt and from the heart going from mere affinity-based love to an unconditional, never-letting-go kind of love. And can we do this? Absolutely. Because he now lives and empowers each of us who have believed and trusted in Christ to be able to do what he asks us to do. But now think about it. This doesn't mean, however that this will all be easy. Do we all understand that? Give me a head nod. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. And it doesn't mean that there will not be some formidable roadblocks and barriers to actually living out what God calls us to do, this higher level of love here. And so Peter, interestingly, begins chapter 2 of his letter with a life-challenging warning of what to look out for as we now attempt to love like God calls us to love. Joe read it earlier, but let's read it again. Look at verses 1 to 3. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So fascinating, folks. Right after he gives us a call to love each other, Peter then goes on to give us a challenge, namely to put away all, and then he lists five relational sins. And i got to ask you, do you think it's a coincidence? Do you think it's a coincidence that he calls us to a higher level of love and then all of a sudden switch gears and starts talking about relational sin? I don't think it's a coincidence. In fact, here's what I think Peter is saying, and this is point three. He's saying the enemy of love is relational sin. I think you need to put two and two together here. End of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, and see he's trying to tell us that the enemy of love, what's going to get in the way of this more than anything else, is relational sin. And to truly get this, I need you to look more closely for just a minute, because I know we're running out of time here, but just for a minute, look more closely at this list that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 gives us. And as you look at this list, simply ask yourself, can any of these things be done without either involving or hurting other people? Can they? Can any of these sins that he mentions here be done alone without affecting relationships? So, for instance, that, that first word, malice, simply means to have ill will towards someone, to harbor bad thoughts or intentions towards someone. And so it, will go out saying, it goes out saying that if there's no someone involved, if one's life is void of relationships, then there can't be any malice. Why? Because it's a relational sin. And then that second word, deceit, here means to take advantage of another through underhanded methods or cunning. It's the same word used in Matthew 26, verse 4, when it talks about how the chief priests and the elders use deceit in their plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. 
And so again, please see, without other people, without relationship, there could be no deceit of this kind. And then we get to that word hypocrisy, and we think, well, this could be done alone. I mean, this doesn't have to involve other people, Jamie. I mean, you can be a hypocrite all by yourself without affecting others. But can you? You see, in the way that the New Testament uses this word, it only uses this word six times. In every instance, it involves hurting other people. It involves getting in the way of other people. The Greek word here is the Greek word hypocrisis, which we translate hypocrisy. And it meant back then what it means today, a public impression at odds with one's real purposes or motives. And so without a public impression, think about it, without some external persona that others see, there is no identifiable hypocrisy. And so we only label somebody a hypocrite when it involves community and relationships. Do you see that there? It's a relational sin. So you got malice, deceit, hypocrisy. And then Peter caps off this list with two more, envy and slander, obviously relational sins. I mean, you can't envy someone or something that someone has without other people involved, and you certainly can't slander, speak evil of somebody, or an inanimate object. You can only slander people. It's all relational sins. Don't miss this, folks. All these things Peter is talking about here are activities that destroy relationship, that bring others down. And so you got to wonder, as he mentions these things right on the coattails of calling us to a higher level of love, if these things aren't really the enemies of love. And I think they are. And I think that's exactly what Peter is communicating to us. He's simply saying, as you hear the call to love like God loves, and as you realize that this love is calling you to, to love on a wholly different plane than the culture is around us, look out. Because even though the Spirit lives in you, and even though his word abides forever and has called you to himself, there's going to be some things that try to sabotage you loving others around you day in and day out. There's some things, some fallen tendencies inside your soul, certain temptations that you're going to have to cop an attitude or get ticked off or want to get back at others or put them in their rightful place. And he's saying, beware of these things. They're the sworn enemies of the love that I've called you to. Some of you might be thinking at this point, well, come on, Jamie. Like, these are pretty serious and heavy sins. I mean, do you really think that the church actually struggles with these things? I mean, aren't these really reserved for people like Howard Stern? No, I don't. In fact, I would submit to you that we as the church struggle with these things every stinking day, that these are our greatest temptations. In fact, I would even submit to you, and this will blow some of you away, that these sins are a lot more prevalent than most of the sins that we tend to pick on in our culture today. I mean, think about it. Adultery versus envy. Adultery versus envy. I mean, we hear all the time how bad adultery is, and it is. We should obviously not do that. And yet I would submit to you that envy occurs a lot more common than adultery. I mean, envy, as Wayne Grudem says, is simply the opposite of thankfulness. And so anytime you're not thankful, chances are you're being envious saying, boy, I really like my neighbor's car. Wish I had their job. Wish I could have a body like them. You know, all those people look at my body all the time say it. And so things like that, right? <laughs> I mean, the reality is, is we go around envying and envying and envying. And the reality is, I think we envy a lot more than people ever commit adultery. Or think about getting drunk versus slander. Slander is simply defined as any speech that harms another person's reputation or status. Any speech. And I would submit to you that the church is probably a lot better at slander than we are getting drunk. 
I don't see many of you walking into church like Otis from the Andy Griffith show, right? I mean, the reality is, is that though alcoholism is prevalent today, and, and again, that's not healthy, it's, it's not good, in the end it's a sin, the reality is, is that I would submit to you that slander is a lot more common than that. Or, or getting on a brass tacks, maybe think about sexual sin. You know, James Dobson cites that pornography is so prevalent in the church today, especially among men, that he estimates, estimates that 40% of church men are involved in some regular form of pornography, and that's awful. I mean, that's something we need to repent of, and I know our men's ministry addresses that all the time. And yet, I would suggest to you that malice and deceit, this ill will toward another brother or sister in Christ, is even more prevalent than sexual sin. And Peter Davids, a great author and expert on First Peter, says that this malice is a force that destroys fellowship. Or how about business integrity versus hypocrisy? I hear all the time somebody, you've heard this too, somebody says, you know, so-and-so, they, they call themselves a Christian, but they're a really bad business person, right? We've heard that before, right? And that's probably true. They're probably not a good business person, and in that sense, they're a hypocrite. But think about it. The fact that they're not a good business person, the fact that you might know somebody like that that claims to be a Christian is a subset, one example of hypocrisy, which is a much bigger issue among Christians today. Do you see what I'm getting at there? So think about all the sins that we tend to get down on today, that we kind of make our big five. I mean, adultery, drunkenness, sexual sin, lack of business ethics, things like that. I mean, how often do you ever hear somebody say, I really want to get envy, slander, malice, deceit, and hypocrisy out of the church? We don't hear that very often. And yet none of the things that we make the big five today are things that appear in Peter's lists. None of those are the things that he says are going to destroy this love factor, though they're probably not going to help. The reality is, is that what destroys love are the five things that Peter mentions here. I mean, in a very real sense, he's saying when you wake up, yeah, determine not to commit adultery, determine not to fall into sexual sin, determine, you know, to be good in your business, all that. But if you really want to love, if you really want to be a follower, then beware of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and, and the like. He's saying those are the things they're going to kill love. They destroy relationship. And in this way, they halt kingdom activity right in their steps. When I, uh, about a month from now, I'm going to be going on a, on a short trip. And uh, when I get back, we're going to do a two-week vision series to uh, kind of propel us into the next step as a church on the vision of our church. I mentioned this maybe last week. And uh, I just got to tell you, one of the things I want you to be prepared for is that the vision that myself and the elders have come up with that we believe is a, a thoroughly biblical, central biblical vision is all going to surround this idea of love. That as I've spent time with our elders and staff, we really believe that we live in a culture today that, that doesn't understand love, that it's kind of overused that word and it's become so vanilla and meaningless. But yet at the same time, it's what the Bible calls us to as the heart and core of who we're to be. And I want you to think in preparation for that time all the things that we're known for as Christians today. Can you do that with me? I mean, it's almost sad. We're, we're known for our heightened morality. Well, that's a good thing. We're known for the fact that, that we tend to want to be blessed by God. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, we're known that we uh, say align with Israel and want to see the Holy Land protected. Well, that's a good thing. Even many of our younger Christians, the younger Generation X coming up, are, are known for their activism. You know, that they're more activists than the baby boomers were. That's a good thing. 
But none of those, think about none of those, hit the core. I mean, it's fine if we're known for those things. But we're to be known for, more than anything else, what turned the first century world upside down was this love of another kind. That when somebody met a Christian, there was something so radically different about them. They were loved in a way that nobody else loved them in culture, that they were drawn to what they had. Do you see how this works? And I would just love, I long for the day. I think we're there in part, but we have some ways to go. I long for the day that when people think of Scottsdale Bible Church, you and me, they go, man, I might think they're wacky. I might not agree with some of their theology. I'm not sure I understand all that they do. But boy, are they a loving group of people. And they sure seem to love Jesus. And they sure seem to love me. Father, I thank you that uh, in your word you call us to a life that you know when we live, that when we start to follow you in this way, that our souls have found the sweet spot and uh, you are glorified and honored. And that, Lord, as we've seen today, we're also then that much more usable in your sight. And so, Father, I pray that there might not be one person here this morning who doesn't hear the call that you've given through your servant Peter to love at a new level, to love one another earnestly from the heart. And so, Lord, would you make our love that kind? And, Father, would you help us to deal with many of the barriers that do exist in our souls right now, the temptations to, to have ill will or to slander another person or to not be kind or to judge? God, there's so many things that just wage war in our souls. God, would you, would you rise up your spirit within us? And, God, would you do the soul work that we need to be the people that you've called us to? And, God, once that happens, would you then use us to be a prevailing church in the Scottsdale and, and, and Phoenix area? and even to the world. Lord, may we be a force of love, a force of care and compassion, as well as a force of truth as we talk about and show this Jesus that has so changed our lives. And so, Father, we would ask that for our church. And, Lord, may all the glory and honor go to you. And we thank you for this time in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you and have a great day.